0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. While you're watching the podcast, if you like it, click on that little super thanks button underneath the video. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also throw a few pennies my way at brianmcclanahan.com, b-r-i-o-n-mcclanahan.com. Click the support tab. You can support the show that way. You can click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. While you're there, give me that email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. That's the best way to financially support the show because you get awesome content. And of course, you keep this podcast free of charge. You can go to LearnTrue, T R U E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. As always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I do like to hear what you want to hear, and we need to grow this audience. All right, so let's talk about the topic of the day, and I mentioned on yesterday's show we were talking about originalism and the origins of originalism, and again, this idea, this concept that originalism was born out of, say, the 1980s is just completely bunk, And it's bunk because we know the founding generation were essentially originalists when it came to their understanding of the British Constitution. Now, of course, people will say, well, Thomas Jefferson thought we needed to have a new constitution every so many years. And he wasn't really an originalist. Well, Jefferson, of course, believed that you could amend the Constitution, but he always said the Constitution should be interpreted the way it was ratified and the way it's written. Right, So he was an originalist. He did think the Constitution could change, but that doesn't make him an anti-originalist. What it does is it makes him say, okay, well, we have to legally alter the document to make it different. Otherwise, we have to adhere to the Constitution that's actually written and ratified. If we don't make any alterations, we can't do that. You see, the anti-originalists want to just loosely interpret the Constitution. That was Jefferson's whole problem with John Marshall and Alexander Hamilton and all of the nationalists in the founding generation. That was the problem. Originalism is simply saying, this is what the Constitution is, this is what it means, this is what it's always meant, and this is what it's meant since it was, since the beginning. This is, this is how we need to interpret it. right?" So, this is not something new. The American War for Independence was a constitutional crisis, just as the War for Southern Independence was a constitutional crisis. What powers does the central government have? What powers does it not have? And that was the entire basis of the sectional conflict anyways. And that sectional conflict began long before the 1850s or 40s or 30s when slavery became a major political issue. It was going on before that. And there was talk in the North about leaving the Union. So again, a constitutional crisis always creates uh, a problem when it comes to saying, staying in a Union. It always does because you have one party interpreting something one way, and one party interpreting it the other way, and hence, you're going to have a break. It's going to happen. So, originalism is not something that was created out of thin air. So, I want to focus on this piece. It was in the Washington Monthly, and it's written by Garrett Epps. And the title is, A Supreme Court in the Originalist Fallacy. Now, Epps is not in favor of originalism, but again... Uh, there is no originalist fallacy, and I think he doesn't really understand what it means. And I'm going to, I've already explained originalism before and what it really does mean. And and I'm going to say that again today, but I'm going to go through this article because uh, Epps makes some mistakes in it. He says, even as Texas families mourn their dead, it wouldn't be all that surprising if the Supreme Court conservative majority on Tuesday tells us that what America needs is more guns on the streets and highways. But that's that's not what the Supreme Court has done. I mean, he's he's, he's taking the Supreme Court, and this is what the left does. They make it a political entity. Now, we know that because of the left, really, the court has taken this super legislative role in America. But that's not what it was designed to do. And they don't like it when the other side controls the court. They want to control the court. So that's what court packing is all about. They want to keep it that super political entity, super legislative entity, But they want to make sure they control it because why underneath all of this is that p word power they want to ensure that there is no check on their power and authority to make you do what they tell you you're going to do to make you support their idiotic months to make them support their mask mandates whatever it is this is what they want to do if they do and though i hate to make court predictions it seems likely that they will they will also expect the rest of us to praise them for their wisdom and independence. It is honestly more than a beleaguered nation should have to bear. In both the guns, gun rights case, New York Rifle versus Pist- and Pistol Association v. Bruin, and the abortion rights case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, whose apparent result has been leaked, though the final opinion hasn't been released, the justices will most likely practice what the Italians call Ponzio Pilatimizo, pilet- right? Ponzio Pilat Miso, excuse me, if I can say this Italian. I'm not Italian, so. "Panzio Pilat Miso, which is the political art of deciding without admitting you are doing so, as Pontius Pilate did when he literally washed his hands of the whole crucifixion business. The course newly energized conservative majority will explain that despite some people claiming that the decisions will spell sickness for, and death for millions, the court has no choice but to brutalize these aspects of American life because that's what the founders have told them to do. But see, uh, here's the thing about these dopes that run around criticizing a Supreme Court decision like this. The Constitution is a written document. The Constitu- Having a written Constitution is different than an unwritten Constitution. You can make a case, if we had the British Constitutional Model, where the court was the final arbiter of just about everything, that you can change this. It's fluid. Now, there is tradition, custom, and precedent, but that can be changed by court decisions in Great Britain. But the beauty of a written model was that it was rigid. The the general government had powers that are expressly delegated to the center or enumerated, those enumerated powers, and nothing beyond that. Now, the mere fact, is that this is where you can get into the founding generation and the, the problems with the Bill of Rights, and I've, I've said this many times. Simply by adding the Bill of Rights, the opponents of the document essentially created a nightmare because it changed the way people thought about the Constitution. One of the arguments against the Constitution it has all these implied powers. Well, the proponents of the document swore up and down that it never did. But by adding a bill of rights, you essentially codify that interpretation of the document, because you say, "Well, you a well regulated militia, et cetera, et cetera." So you're saying that the general government did have the power, ostensibly, to disarm people. So that's why you had the Second Amendment. But if you look at the at the Constitution itself, it says that the general government can arm the militia. It doesn't say they can disarm the militia. It says they can arm the militia. It doesn't say anything about taking away weapons. right? So uh, by adding the Second Amendment, which became the Second Amendment, you've created an environment where you essentially imply that the general government could have disarmed the militia. But that wasn't the case. In fact, you know, Roger Sherman made this clear. Alexander Hamilton made this clear. A Bill of Rights is unnecessary because what you're doing is saying that these implied powers are in the document, but they really aren't. So they're not really doing anything here to uh, do something the founders told them to do. They're simply looking at the document as it was ratified and saying, okay, this is what was intended by the document. That's it. That has apparently meant tossing 50 years of abortion rights precedent. Well, but it was a bad legal decision. I mean, so this is the problem with this dope. He's not really up to—he's using all this language, this uh, you know, these platitudes, slogans, all this uh, you know, doom rhetoric in this particular piece. But the the the. Roe v. Wade decision was an awful legal decision. Even proponents of the decision at the time recognized that there's no legal basis for this thing. You're basically crafting something out of thin air because you want to legislate for this. It's all you want to do. And it will likely mean rewriting the decision in District of Columbia v. Heller, the gun rights case that allowed for local regulation of guns but will now be read to gut them all. Now, I'll say this about that. Uh Local regulation of guns is perfectly constitutional. So is local re- regulation of Roe v. Wade, right? They're the same thing. These are state issues, not federal issues. Both. So see, the problem with this piece is that, is that uh, Epps has a, pro- has, has, a, has a dispute with federalism in one case, but not federalism in another. He likes federalism when it comes to gun regulation, but not to Roe v. Wade. Because Roe v. Wade is something else uh, entirely because it's his leftist political agenda, whereas the other isn't. His leftist political agenda would allow for state regulation of firearms. Now, I'm sure he'd want to nationalize that, but at least federalism for him works there. And on the other hand, if conservatives uh, are consistent, they would allow for local regulation of firearms as well as the other. Even as they outrage a majority of Americans on both issues, I'm not sure about that, and even as they display naked fealty to their far-right agenda, the conservatives will rhapsodize their own courage and fidelity, and their preening will not suffice. They will expect the rest of us to praise them for their deliberate blindness to the consequences of their decisions. The Americans' people's belief in the rule of law will be shaken, just as Samuel Lito blandly explains in the draft Dobbs' decision. If they lost respect for the court as an institution that decides important cases based on principle, not social and political pressures. All right, so much of the left-wing decisions the court has made in the last half century are based on political pressures. This is entirely true. Political pressures. This week is the right time to take a subtle look at originalism, the fashionable right-wing theory of constitutional interpretation. As practiced by conservative judges, originalism far more closely resembles a solicitation email from the finance minister of Tanu Tuva than actual legal reasoning. That's because, as a judicial theory, originalists claim that judges can study history and come up with a determinate result to contemporary legal questions. And they are right, as long as they, and the conservative legal movement, control what evidence the courts may consider. Now, again, this is where... Epps doesn't really understand what originalism, the core of originalism, really is. The core of religion, originalism is one thing it's called federalism. It's believing in a federal republic, that the central authority has certain limited enumerated powers, clearly defined in the document. This is what James Wilson said in the State House Yard speech in October of 1787, and that all the rest are left to the states. That's simply it. And originalism is pretty simple. If it doesn't say that the central government has the power to do it, it doesn't have the power to do it. And it doesn't matter what you want to read into. It doesn't have the power to do it. All these things were left to the states. And you can go back to Tench Cox and American Citizen Essays where he outlined in detail what the central government could not do, yet the state governments could do. It's pretty detailed. And this is what people thought in 1787 and 1788. If you want that detail, take my Originalist Papers class where I go over 101 documents in favor of ratification of the Constitution. It is an awesome class. It's 101 lectures. Uh, I've got a bundle for it. You can take parts of it, but I've got a bundle. And I go chronologically from 1787 all the way through 1788 looking at public documents in favor of ratification. That's the key to understanding originalism. The point here isn't to look at history for the sake of studying history, former Solicitor General Paul Clement told the court in last November's gun rights argument, but to look at the history that's relevant for understanding the original public meaning of the Second Amendment. And surprise, 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 to the conservative legal movement, history that's relevant means any scrap of history that supports the most pro-gun position. In contrast, irrelevant means the extensive history suggesting that, in fact, an untrammeled right to carry pistols was not part of the liberties of Americans at the time of the framing. Now, here is where um, people like Epps confuse central and state powers. The central authority had essentially no legislation on firearms except that you had to carry or had to have a rifle or a musket and a certain amount of powder and ammunition. So they mandated people be armed. The states, though, could control other things. And if they wanted to control pistols, for example, or uh, certain other parts of being armed, they could do it. But the the earliest gun legislation was people need to be armed. That was it. They were arming the militia. The states could regulate these things in a different way, but the federal government mandated that people have ammunition, powder, and a musket if you're of a certain age. Mandated. Now, I'm not so certain how this isn't clear. The states could regulate other things, but the federal government could not. They couldn't disarm you. If they didn't tell you that you, that you had to have that, they would have been silent on the issue, and the states would have handled everything else. Bruin seems poised to create another right, a right to the concealed carry of handguns. Maybe you or I don't think what American cities need is more concealed weapons on the streets, Maybe you think the timing for a pro-gun decision, days or at best weeks after the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, is atrocious. But what you or I think doesn't signify, does it? After all, the current judge- justices aren't really deciding anything. The decision was made long ago by some dudes who are now dead but who speak to conservative judges, and only to them, in the still watches of the night. See, this is stupid. This is just, I mean, absolutely asinine language. Because is that, that's not what's happening. But he wants to sound hip. Some dudes, some dead dudes. Is he? Is he Bill and Ted? Is the guy Bill and Ted? Uh, and it doesn't really matter what it doesn't really matter what you or I think on this. It matters what the Constitution allows the general government to do. Now the states again. I can I can quibble with the Supreme Court invalidating state gun rights. But you know where the heart of that comes? Because all of you progressives wanted incorporation. So if we didn't have incorporation, this wouldn't be an issue. Right? But you wanted incorporation. And so incorporation cuts both ways. If you're going to have incorporation, you're going to have to deal with this. Because honestly, incorporation, if you incorporate the Second Amendment, it means that the states cannot disarm anybody either. They can arm, but they can't disarm. And so that is where you get to the double-edged sword for the progressives. Now, if you take away incorporation, then your states can do whatever you want with guns. But then also, if you take away incorporation, a lot of your pet woke projects are gonna go away because the states can then regulate those things too. You see? The real issue here is incorporation, which is a which is a completely fabricated legal argument by the left. There's no evidence this was in fact, James Madison wanted an incorporation amendment because he knew that the Bill of Rights was not incorporated, with did not apply to the states, only the central authority. And it was rejected. You see, incorporation was presented in the founding generation and rejected because they knew nothing incorporated. And we know that the 14th Amendment was not an incorporation amendment because that's not how it was designed or ratified when it was drafted and added to the Constitution. So Epp says, to be clear, I love originalism as a scholarly discipline and respect many of those who practice it. Understanding the thought process of the framers about a given provision and the practical situation they were addressing can permanently shed light on American intellectual history and sometimes even form contemporary legal debates. But it's one thing for a scholar to advance a new interpretation of a clause set against the backdrop of new historical research or a fresh interpretation of neglected material. It's quite another for a lawyer or judge to claim that voices have told them the one true meaning of that clause. The former is exciting, the latter appalling. Well, that's because that's not what people do. That's what that's what progressives do. They walk around and hear the voice of Lincoln and have to go do something. That's what progressives do. History cannot provide a rule of decision for contemporary judges deciding contemporary legal problems. That's not because we can ignore the original public meaning of the text. It's because, in most cases, we cannot possibly establish clearly what that is. The quest itself is almost completely incoherent. The best evidence of this is the, that the meaning of original and originalism has had to be erased and rewritten three times. When first proposed by Reagan Attorney General Edwin Meese in the 1980s, it was a jurisprudence of original intention. Now, see, here's where Epps gets this wrong. It's not the first time we had originalism. You could say John C. Calhoun was an originalist. You could say Thomas Jefferson. You could say all of the individuals who said, look, you're stretching the Constitution beyond what was intended are originalists going all the way back to the old Republicans. Those are the originalists. It's not proposed in the 1980s. It's just that people started saying, hey, wait a second here. We've had all these decades now of progressive jurisprudence that doesn't really adhere to the Constitution at all. We're going way beyond what was intended in this document. We stretch it to the point where it has no meaning anymore. We need to start rethinking that. And, of course, the core of it has always been federalism. Embarrassingly enough, that formulation fell apart quickly. We have no access to the framers' secret thoughts. You don't need it. You just need the public declarations. That's it. And the public declarations are pretty clear. Here's what the central government can do. Here's what it cannot do. So it cannot do these things so you don't do them. It's pretty simple. The Congress does these things. It's going beyond its, its enumerated powers. There you go. Pretty simple. You can just look at the public declarations. You don't have to go to their secret thoughts. They made it quite clear. But see, this is, oh, they've got to read these letters. you got to get in their secret thoughts. No, you don't. Not at all. And besides, the intention of the framers has no binding quality. They were proposing a constitution that was enacted into law by we the people. No, it wasn't. The people of the states and the states in ratifying conventions. And they talked about what this thing meant. And thus the framers' intentions, even if knowable, would be irrelevant. no. That's not true, because this is the document that they got. So the key term morphed into original understanding of a provision in the minds of the ratifiers. Oops, same problem, only squared. Who knows what long-dead citizens who, in their thousands, voted for delegates in the, to the state ratifying conventions, understood, say, the meaning of ex post facto or commerce among the several states when they voted. Well, they talked about it. That's how we know, because in public speeches, in public documents, they said it. Today, the shiny new quest is for the original public meaning of a provision, that is, the assumption being that the public meaning is an objective fact that we can find and agree on. There was one thing they agreed on. The central government had enumerated powers, and, and everything else was left to the states. That's what they agreed on. So all these things that the left likes to do, all their pet projects, would be unconstitutional to the founding generation, at least from the center, not the states. See, here's the thing. Federalism is the beauty. This is why I think locally, act locally matters. It's the beautiful part of the system. But you have to be willing to accept that there's going to be idiots in other states that do dumb things. You have to accept it. That search, alas, is not only is also not only impossible but essentially meaningless. No, it's not. It's not. I've got a whole class on it. Tell you how to do it. Even today, public understanding of politics and government is a slippery is slippery to decode, and that involves a population available to be polled and interviewed. The framing generation is well dead, you know. Neither their thoughts nor their understandings are given to us to know. This is just stupid. Of course they are. They wrote about it. There is, look, the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution has, I think, uh, six or seven full volumes of public papers where they talked about what the Constitution meant. And when I say full volumes, I'm talking about books that are 600 pages. They, they said what the Constitution meant when it was going through ratification. They said it. This problem did not deter Justice Antonin Scalia, the patron saint of originalism, from proclaiming it not only valid, but easy-peasy. It is. When I look for it in the Constitution, Scalia wrote in 1997 as precisely what I look for in a statute, the original meaning of the text, no matter what the original draftsman intended. Often, indeed, I dare say, usually, that is easy to discern and simple to apply. Yes, that's right. Now please send your legal system to me in Tanatuva, and in return you will receive untold good fortune. In fact, almost nothing about the past, even the original public meaning of words, is easy to discern and simple to apply. It's easy to understand that the age of 35 years in Article 2 means that a president must be 35 years old. Still, almost nothing else, including the full meaning of natural-born citizen and that eligibility clause, is as clear as Scalia and his acolytes would pretend. Well, this isn't true either. You can go back and look at what they did intend by that, because they did talk about it. (laughs) They talked about it, right? It's been clear; they talked about it, and it wasn't what we think it means today. You don't have to to uh, use a a machine to try to decode what this means. They had a discussion about it. In fact, as the constitutional historian Jack C. and I'm sorry, Jack N. Rackov has written, actual historians have little stake in ascertaining the original meaning of a clause for its own sake or in attempting to freeze or distill its true, unadulterated meaning at some pristine moment of constitutional understanding. Answering those kinds of problems is not what history does, which may be why Clement was so eager to direct the court's attention away from anything written for the sake of studying history. Well, First of all, Rakov doesn't really write good stuff about original understanding. And um, that's right, historians don't go out and look at clause by clause, but what they do is have a general look understanding of what originalism is, which is what I've done, the founding father's guide to the Constitution, my American Constitution class, original the originalist papers class I show you what these people said about these things. It's that simple what is history? How can we know the past? That question has produced many answers over the 250 I'm sorry 2500 years since Herodotus wrote in his histories the British academic publisher polity Books has issued a series entitled what is history It currently stands at 20 volumes. I will wager that neither Alito nor his clerks have read deeply in the theory and practice of history, if they are not. And, I, and it, um, I would venture to guess that Epps, while he says he's deeply reading these things, hasn't really done a very good job of it either. If they have, it certainly didn't show in the draft Dobbs opinion, which speculated on what William Blackstone or Sir Matthew Hale not only wrote about abortion but what they secretly thought. Surprisingly enough, it turns out that in their thoughts they didn't like it. We have Alito's word on that. Meanwhile, the significant body of women's history written in the past half-century suggests that for much of the period during and after the framing, midwives and others practice abortion clandestinely. But that history doesn't count. What happens in original and judicial decisions has nothing to do with history. Instead, originalism is used as a way to shut down opposing arguments. To sum it up, that method has six steps. Find some old legal cases or other sources that can be quoted, even if sharply edited first, to favor a conservative policy outcome of a constitutional dispute. Again, Originalism uh, is actually much easier than this. You go back and say, okay, did the founding generation think the central government had power to do this because generally that's what's going on? If yes, then the decision is easy, it's constitutional. If not, then it's unconstitutional if the Congress passed the law. On the other hand, did the founding generation think the states had the power to do this If yes, it's constitutional. If not, it's unconstitutional because it violates Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution. Otherwise, there's not really much to it. It's pretty simple. Proclaim this policy outcome as the original public meaning of the constitutional provision at issue. Exclude as much contrary evidence including existing judicial precedent as possible. We'll see because existing judicial precedent really doesn't matter to originalism because it's not about an unwritten constitution, which that's what you're talking about there. It's about a written constitution. Announce that none of the remaining evidence disproves your side for a preferred policy outcome. Enshrine your preferred policy outcome in constitutional doctrine. If courtesy calls for it, apologize for the harshness of the result, but note that you bear no responsibility. Our founders decided it long, long ago, and you are simply their humble scribe. That method is on display in the draft Dobbs opinion. It seems quite likely to form the basis of the upcoming majority opinion in New York, rifle, and pistol. There is little that ordinary people can do to halt this rogue court's rightward lurch or to escape the malign consequences of their radical opinions. Um, again, they're invalidating a very bad decision in Roe v. Wade. It was not based on the Constitution at all. I could, I could actually agree that uh, if they're going to invalidate New York gun control, that would be a bad decision because... The evidence is all there that New York could regulate firearms wherever they wanted to, but regardless, um, we're not dealing with consistency on either side, and certainly not from Epps. What ordinary people can do is refuse to be con- conned. Justice Amy Coney Barrett recently assured us that this court is not compromised. I'm sorry, comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. Don't fall for it. The new course jurisprudence, it seems likely, will have little to do with the Constitution, law, or history of the kind that takes hard study and yields ambiguity. Well, that's because it's not really ambiguous about what the central powers were, or what the state powers were. It's not ambiguous. It's not easy. It's not. It's not, it's not hard to discern. It's pretty easy to discern. It is powered by the authoritarian philosophy that has captured the federal branch and works assiduously to undermine free elections, equal rights, and racial justice. Well, I could say the authoritarian philosophy has been there from the left for over a century. That's where you have authoritarian philosophy at hand. See, the problem is the left, like Epps, lefties like Epps, got their court the way they wanted it, which was an extra legal branch, and then when it doesn't go their way, then they complain about it. That's really what issues at, at issue here. Remember that democracy in 2022 has many enemies smart, well-funded people and groups who study American life with, as H.G. Wells said in his Fictional Martians and War of the Worlds, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic, and plot destruction of democratic norms. And of those intellectuals, none are more determined and resourceful enemies of democracy than the packed majority on the post-Trump Supreme Court. The packed majority? This guy is a legal scholar. This guy, I mean, he's not just some op-ed writer. Garrett Epps is, um, is a constitutional law professor. He's a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, but he's taught at American University, University of Baltimore, Boston College. He's written a book on the Constitution. So what this guy is saying is such complete left-wing drivel. But, I mean, this is how, this is what the left thinks now. So this is why I wanted to cover this article. It's complete gobbledygook stupidity, but, hey, uh, It's what passes for actual intellectual thought on the left. The language, the rhetoric, the stupidity, the mischaracterization of what's going on. This is leftist, quote-unquote, academic thought. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.